I'm Al Filris, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of poetry to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem or a few poems. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities, and we hope gain for some poems that interest us new readers and new listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Penn Sound archive, writing.upenn.edu slash Sound. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined here in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, USA, at the Kelly Writers House in our Wexler studio by Pierre Jory's poet, translator, playwright, critic, and there's more winner of the 2021 Penn Ralph Mannheim Award for Translation, translator and editor of, among many important works, Memory Rose into Threshold Speech, the collected earlier poetry of Paul Ceylon, author of many books of his own writing, including recently Fox Trails, Tales, and Trots, and editor also of an important recent book of essays on Robert Kelly, A City Full of Voices, and by Charles Bernstein, whose recent book, is topsy-turvy, full of cognitive dissonance, but actually cognitive dissidence, unruliness, and my favorite word for Charles, anti-anti-intellectualism, <laughs> published by Chicago. Poet, editor, essayist, theorist, scholar, librettist, editor, way back with Bruce Andrews of Language Magazine, winner of the Bollingen Prize, and co-founder with me of Penn Sound. And by Jerome Rothenberg, poet, critic, teacher, anthologist, Translator, activist, archivist, assembler, organizer, and editor who has done as much as anyone of his generation and other generations, for that matter, to make a radical modernism available to all readers whose influential anthologies are too numerous to name here, but include Revolution of the Word, Technicians of the Sacred, and whose books of poetry, just to name a few, include Poland 1931, Seedings, A Paradise of Poets, whose newest book, In the Shadow of a Mad King, is being published by Granary Books, and whose Penn Sound page is a treasure trove of recordings, of readings, and performances by this poet whose remarkable voice is ever in our ears. Jerry, you're ever in our ears. Welcome back to the Writer's House. Thank you, Al. (laughs) It's really great to see you. You're amazing. And let the record show that Diane Rothenberg is also here in the room, just enjoying things. Pierre, hi. How are you? Hi, Al. Wonderful to be back here. So you're in Philly, but you're not seeing the Liberty Bell. No, Nicole is seeing the Liberty Bell for me. For the both of you. Yes. And what's the point of one of you seeing the Liberty Bell and not the other? (laughs) Well, she was an American citizen years before I was, so she has prime. Otherwise, she would be here and I'll be going there. How many years before your citizenship? Was she an American citizen? Ten years or so. So ten years from now, you will be able to go see yes. the Liberty Bell. Got, we got that math. Charles, good to see you as always. I'm worried about that crack <laughs> I was, you know, I was about to say. Day. I was about to say, Charles, will you say something non-ironic, please? And then, of course, he beat me to it. I'm not sure that is I don't ironic. Think you it's were hard being for ironic. me to know. <laughs> he wants us to crack up. Yeah. Yeah. Oh gosh, here we go. Well, today... I, I, I thought you said Krakow. <laughs> oh, Poland, yeah. Poland, Poland, Poland. <laughs> Sound this association. Is, this is not starting well, guys. Uh, we four have gathered here to talk about two poems by Armand Schwerner. The first one is one of the poems written for the series, The Tablets. Our poem is Tablet 25, and it, along with all the other sections can be found in a complete edition published by the National Poetry Foundation in 1999. The second poem we'll consider today is Daddy, Can You Staple These Two Stars Together? Originally published in Seaweed and available on page 50 of Selected Shorter Poems, which was published by Junction Press. Also in 1999, it was a big Schwerner year, 99. Our recordings of these poems come from Penn Sound's Armand Schwerner author page, Tablet 25, was recorded by the National Poetry Foundation in the mid-1990s. And our recording of Daddy, Can You Staple? was made by Paul Blackburn himself, using his reel-to-reel recorder, I believe, at the Poetry Project at St. Mark's Church in New York on January 18th, 1967. So one recording is from the 90s, the other is from Yeah, 1999 was also the year of Armand's death. 99, that early? Mm-hmm. Well, it was, a, I guess... 
sadly, it was a big year, and is made available through the amazing Blackburn Collection housed at the University of California at San Diego. So here now is Armand Schwerner performing Tablet 25 and Daddy, Can You Staple These Two Stars Together. Tablet 25. Clearly, I'm the swimming animal. The light song or the dark song. Missing section. Simple, untranslatable. When it's hot, I'm wet. I don't need to celebrate to strike two stones together. Alone in this small, getting older house, humbled by distractible eyes, quiet realm, untranslatable. Animal, what happened yesterday? The lettuce drains on the sill, colored liquids going up and down inside me, untranslatable, tracks, untranslatable, untranslatable beginning, without any time, missing part. The next line is missing and untranslatable, river, untranslatable segment. Reaching around behind my left shoulder, never mind. Untranslatable segment. Reaching around into the hollow behind my left shoulder, anything. There might be water, a wasp, clangor lately, the thickness of the vagina smell of another room, the great matters of my pictures whose songs and my dreams look like my story, look like a missing part. Nothing. There's nothing after I cut down the frenzied objects in the dance. Nothing to celebrate or hide from. Untranslatable. Iron cinctures in my shoulders, unnecessary to turn around. Back is back. Untranslatable segment. A phalanx of my teachers changing voices on the clay road, and I lift my head up to the perennial sun, hot red stone in a blue containing it or back of it. So it is there, I in my air, here, untranslatable. These small getting older thighs matted like the floor of the woods with webs and fists of branches keeping their story, missing section, letting drop away their story, Untranslatable. Ah. The ground. Yesterday. A vast invitation of voices. Wet through by flooding. Alive with drone and crawl. Track and shimmer of beings in love with the hazy dusk of water. That line ends with an untranslatable segment the next five lines are untranslatable. The last line of this tablet contains one word in the middle of an otherwise untranslatable series. The word is hazy. Uh, yeah. First poem is uh, <clears throat> takes its title from a, uh, a question uh, that my son Adam asked me one time when I was in my room and uh, I had cut out a, uh, a star from an uh, aluminum foil and, uh, and he came in and he said, uh, Daddy, can you staple these two stars together to make an airplane? And uh, so that's the title of the poem. Yes, and staple these two maples together to make a ground, and grind these two staples together to make a beach, and tether these two cars together to make a track, and bruise these two leathers together to make a cow, and put these two eyeglasses together so that you'll sleep on top of him, and hit these two tables together to kill a mother, and tie these two blankets together to make a room, and clip these two birds together to make a turtle, and force these two tigers together to make a one, and melt these two bugs together to make a one, and push these two ones together to make a one, 
and cover these two hammers together to make a pillow and staple these two grounds together to make a maple and hammer two mothers together to make a car and splice these two pussy willows together to make a forest and stuff these two voices together to make a throat and crush these two rings together to make a voice and label these two throats together to make a one and join these two fathers together to make a horse and whip two friends together to make a dog and slash two turtles together to make a monster and kill two brothers together to make an aquarium and carry two heads together to make a fish and pile two houses together to make a doctor and wind two snakes together to make a snake and burn two hands together to make a hole and kill two fathers together to make an eye and lash two trucks together to make a garbage can and glue two flowers together to make a sculpture and link two windows together to make a jungle and be two things together to make a one and be one shape with another to make all the things and be and glue and staple and play and tether and clip and force and hammer and splice and crush and splice and join and whip and carry and pile and play and kill and be and wind and burn and cement and link and play and grind and play and be and stuff and label and carry. Let's start with the tablets. Um, who, Pierre, would you are you willing to give us a, a quick setup? I mean, it's uh, the tablets are an attempt at uh, an epic, sort of a modernist epic, um, and the speaker is seems to be a translator, scholar translator, scholar, scholar translator. So what's what's going on? Well, I'm on found a form to make a long poem in. Uh, that is borrowed from Arcadian Sumerian tablets, those elements that are broken off or that we can't translate. And this gave him a wonderful, both funny and um, serious way of dealing with how to write at this point uh, in time. And to think of the whole poem, I think what is very useful is in that uh, wonderful final edition, the big book, you know, uh, the tablets end with Armand's journals on the tablets and the divagations. And I think they are very useful. I sometimes think, oh, they should have been interspersed between tablets and so on. But no, you know, this is the way uh, it is. So I think it's an immensely imaginative and it's the kind of thing you say, Oh, I wish I had thought of that. Great idea. Yeah. Yeah. And what what we're know. also listening to with tablet, the reading of Tablet Twenty Five, uh, if I have this correctly, uh, is a reading in the year of his death. Yeah. Uh, you know, so it's, uh, it's it really becomes a kind of death song here, also. Uh, yeah. You know, at uh, at the end and. One notices in this too the the, the sense of uh, the person behind the Akkadian poems, the you know the work of what Armand called uh, the ethnopoetic imagination, <laughs> and uh, but it's also the voice of one getting older, hmm. getting older that comes up. A, Two it's or three times through here, very uh, much so. Uh, more yeah, than yeah. Yearly I ones. mean, I thought Hayes, the last Hazy was extremely moving in mm. this respect. Charles, let's talk about the speaker. Um, it's humorous when we realize it's all fiction. The untranslatability. Uh, what's the tone, and who is this character? Is it is it very Schwerner like? Well, for one thing, as Jerry, who knew. Armand much better than me, although I met him in the mid-70s, and Diane Rothenberg was here. They were all close friends. Um, he was born in Antwerp, which, and so he was a, in some degree a second language uh, speaker. He came when he was quite young, nine years old, and he died. Uh, he was born in 1927, so he died when he was just my age, 72. Um, when I first heard Armand Schwerner, it was in a plastic disc that was in Jerome Rothenberg and Dennis Tedlock's 
Alcharinga, an incredible magazine, entirely well, plastic online. Meaning it was published as part of the issue. It was one of these. It was uh, a way that they they made yes, sound files yeah, ethnopoetics. Right, and it was a it was bound into the book as a plastic sheet. Um, Danny Snelson has put the full Al Chiringa, uh, jacket on two, jacket two, yeah. and we have all those plastic inserts too. So I listened to that before I knew any of the before I knew Jerry too, and. Uh, I thought it was hysterically funny. I thought it was like um, a, a stand-up comedy or pataphysics it's, it's maybe stick, right? or Dadaism. And I mean Pierre said this – he said, is it comedy or is it not? I'm not sure that – you know what it is. I think I've always thought that but I'm not sure that Armand always thought that. And um, I think it's you mean both. You he took it more seriously? Well, I think he definitely – well, I mean I'm by the way, of course, as you know with me, I take – Comedy, it's not a question of serious, but I think that as a genre, I think he, it may also be as he got older, he seemed not so interested in the overtly comic part of it. But when I first heard it, it seemed hysterically funny. And I'm sure he was perfectly aware of that. And even maybe his putting that off was part of what the, you know, the concept was, the straight face. Because there is a kind of real profundity and depth that he's interested in yeah. as a genre yeah. as well. Yeah. So it, it oscillates between those two things. Pierre, the the fake untranslatability, um, when he would say uh, uh, untranslatable, you, you felt like wink, wink. He's saying something profound about translatability, but he's also saying, I didn't really find this tablet. And I'm telling you now that there's no section here because it can't be translated. So – can we talk about – I mean this is something you think about all the time for your own work. What is translatable or untranslatable? Well, all is – and I think this is where I very much agree with Armand and he taught me some of that uh, when I say different in different ways, in different essays, that all poem is translation, is a translation. There is no original. And this is one of the great examples, you yes. know, of it, where you create a, fa a totally fake original to write a poem today. And Armand, um, Armand loved that. I mean, when we first met, as I come from Luxembourg original, and he was from Antwerp, which is just, you know, up the road through Belgium, you know, we talked a lot about that. And he talked French wonderfully. And, you know, he loved talking to Nicole in French, you know. Then he got me to translate tablets into German. The only person what who got me like? to do any <laughs> translation of a tablet into German. I loved it. I just did two, you know, but and I, that's the only thing I ever translated into German. <laughs> I did an Armanesque thing afterwards, later now, in fact, recently. I took the German translation of, that I made of his tablet and read it into my computer, recording it, translating it through an English system to reverse the translation process in some way. Reverse and, you know, homophonic comes, AI you know, translate, mistranslation. The, uh, from Tablet 15 starts in that sense, Was Chinese, that's you need an attempt to post it, wait on, I know, paste it in, debt, swipe in Custer. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you get a, the, a strangeness that, that somewhere resembles. So I love the the layer upon layer upon layer, yeah. and you know there is no original. It's the, 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 the yeah. There, there is also a, a tragic sense in this, with the uh, along with the comic, uh, you know, that which disappears in the work, you know. So it, it, it's a signal of disappearances. Nothing survives as a whole. Nothing will survive as a whole, you know. Yes. And uh, you know we feel this when we come across, you know, the actual ancient texts, you know, and it's the, uh, the underlying sense in the tablets, you know, but there's also something comic about that, yeah. <laughs> you know, and there's something comic in the performance. Remember, this is a full scholar translator, <laughs> you know, who is talking here and reading the poem, you know, and sometimes commenting on it and as a scholar translator I do. It's the result of work. Uh, yeah. I saw them for the Petite Histoire when I was 22 or so. I came to a reading at the Poetry Project. People were sitting there waiting, and in the back bench were two guys who, to me, seemed old already, but they were just in their late 40s and early 50s, and that was Jackson McClough and Armand Schwerner. Mm -hmm. And they were sitting back together, and they were comparing notes. 
studying their Tibetan script because they were taking classes and there they would go and writing and the Trevor, no, 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 you got to make that letter that way. I was completely blown away by, by seeing these two, you know, uh, poets investigating this other language in, in, in such a way, you know, complete a the complete scholar poets. Yeah, scholar poets. There um, they were. We, so uh, to, pre to prep for this, I read all the tablets, um, read this m magnificent book, and... I'm, and then people ask me about it, and I, I say the sort of things that we're saying, which is exactly right to talk about the project as a whole and so forth, to talk about the tone. What I'd like us to do is look at the phrases and words of this particular tablet and see if in the sense of encountering Tablet 25 as a poem, not knowing anything else, what the words mean... This is not something we do much in poem talk, or in fact, at the Kelly Writer's House very often. But I think I'll start by suggesting what I mean here by this question. Uh, whenever something becomes powerful or even lyric in this poem, it becomes metapoetic ipso facto because it is about how hard it is to create that kind of phrasing given the constraint of the project. So for me, the most moving part is, and he pauses, missing section, ah, the ground yesterday, and then this, which is a meta statement about the whole project, a vast invitation of voices. And then wet through by flooding suggests the state of the tablet, the state of the ancient script, alive with drone and crawl, et cetera. That to me, um, tells me something about what's being said in this tablet, what supposedly the scholar discovered in this tablet, a reference that's wink, wink, amazing to think about, ah, the ground yesterday, if, if, you, if you're reading a 3,000-year-old tablet and it mentions yesterday, your whole sense of time has changed. And then, of course, the project, somewhat poundy in a vast invitation of voices. And, of voices. and that, that just means a lot to me. All right, who wants to go next? Pick a phrase or a line that means something for you on its own. Charles, you want to go first? Well, I think for one thing, song or the dark song invokes a kind of a shared poetics with, with, with Rothenberg and others of the, at that time they spoke of deep, deep image, but this is a kind of a, a, a really a transformation of it. But dark. Well, Armand was a part of all of that. And I think right. we should spell that out. Right. Dark but song. dark song strikes mm. me, song or dark song. It's this, this resonance. I do think that Armand primary orientation toward this was not comic in the sense that I love the comic, but rather song or dark song, and that this was his way of getting to that level, uh, coming from that that work that that, that that he was doing in in collaboration with Jerry and others. So Jerry could perhaps speak yeah, to uh, that. Yeah. Where does, where does uh, Deep Image come from, the phrase? Uh, well, uh, I think uh, we pulled it uh, from Garcia Lorca writings, uh, Cante Hondo, which meant deep song, deep song, and that's what's uh, going on here. Presumably. Yeah, but uh, <clears throat> sometimes when it's being translated into another language, uh, you know, the the deep uh, can be either deep, meaning depth, or profondo, yeah. profound. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I've always tended to prefer the hondo, the deep, to the profondo. That's making too much of a claim for it. The profound image, uh, you know, the deep image coming, you know, from somewhere that we're not not quite certain about, or perhaps dark song would be another way of uh, right. So song, I think that image in that expression tends, in a superficial way. To get to to um, erase the dark song, which is equally significant uh, in what yeah, you're and, saying. And, and when people think about what that means, they think of image, but it, it isn't really image that was meant. It is something more like song or or even thought. Well, or, that's how uh, you know we come to it from Lorca's deep song. If we come to it from anywhere, and uh, not uh, Lorca doesn't speak deep image. So, so in this respect, uh, in it goes. A little bit against your, your talking about specific images, although I'm interested to do that too. 
one of the incredible formal innovations of the tablets is to allow for a kind of three-dimensional or diachronic. Diachronic is a kind of a fancy word to indicate multiple times, not just in the present like as the lyric poem is. at Ah, the Ground Yesterday. So the... I mean, of course, you mentioned Al uh, Pound, and it, it is a work that comes out of Pound, but also is critical of Pound uh, in, in 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 trying to rethink some of the the, the problems with the cantos. But after all, one of the main cantos is, is drafts and fragments. The issue of fragment is something that many many poets and artists have talked about what it is. But he wants to bring the fragments and the untranslatable part into a tablet. Tablet also suggests. You know, I think many of the audience will know this work, Exodus, not the movie with Sal Mineo. <laughs> I don't think anybody knows that either. <laughs> You're dating yourself. Exodus. <laughs> the tablets in the Bible uh, the, were broken as on Mount Sinai. And I think certainly in, in Schwerner's when case, it came down from you, you can't for, forget that the tablet, while the tablet can mean many different things. And he says, Arcadian, it also means the broken tablet. The broken tablets are very deep thing within Jewish mysticism, for example, the brokenness of the world. And the point isn't to put the broken world back together if it's whole, but to see the, you know, as Leonard Cohn famously says, the light kind of shining through those broken parts. I suppose people may remember Leonard Cohn if they if they don't sound minio. But um, uh, in this case, <laughs> the fact that he has these three levels of the ancient and the breakage creates a non-two-dimensional present field where the poem occurs so that the breakages are not just juxtapositions, which I love, and, 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 and uh, parataxis, putting things together, but actually create temporal mismatchings that, that evoke something that's deep and that's a deep song. And this is in the structure of the tablets itself. It's why the tablets, and I think the four of us agree, is such an important work in terms of the history of modernism and post-war poetry because it creates a new way of dealing with it. Of getting uh, back to uh, what Alpha said, you know, pick up a a line in the poem. Yes, please. Over the vagina smell of another room, the great matters of my pictures whose songs in my dreams look like my story look like. There's this transformation that's going on there from visual to story, from images to story. There's also the sexuality in it, which is very important and runs through, certainly from early on. Oh, and in some of the uh, uh, tablets, it's very strong. It is, t- it is extremely strong. I mean, where there he plays more even with the uh, traditional, maybe Enheduanas, uh, you know, Volva song and those materials that, you know, Jerry had brought out first again in the anthology. Here in the later ones, that sexuality is a bit attenuated, but it's always there. I mean, I find in Armand there a kind of Rabelaisian love of, of, of transformation, you know, of, of, of moving mm, through very, things, very you much know, so. a richness there from the pictures to the stories to da-da, you know, it goes. And, uh, and it's what might be called a terrestriality, that, you know, there's always a reference to the terrain, to the ground, to the body on the ground. That's great. Um, let's do one more of those, and then we should switch to the other poem, which is a very different poem. Jerry, do you want to pick a phrase, line, passage that well, is remarkable? Well, I just wanted to point out, uh, when, when Charles focused on the dark song, uh, that uh, in, the, in the poem itself, uh, it's the light song or the dark song, right? Uh, yeah, and uh, that's a little ambiguous. Uh, you know, is is the light song also called the dark song, or is it a choice you have between the light song and yes. the dark song? And then, unfortunately, there's a section missing, and the and next there's one a is section simple. missing, <laughs> which might have explained all of that to us. No, it's really, I mean, dare I say it, almost Eliotic in its brilliant way of creating a fragment that doesn't have to bear out the logic. So how do we get from the light song or the choice of the dark song and then simple? What the hell is simple? Mm-hmm. And also <laughs> light, light song itself is a uh, great series by uh, Armand's uh, f- great friend, uh, Jackson McClough, the light poems. The light poems, And, and, yes. and, and, and so light in yeah, this and sense. And one wonders if was that in his mind? 
completely because he's also referring to deep image right there. So he's really thinking about where he comes from, I think. Let's let's go so to the, the light and of course, song obviously, or the dark song. Yeah. Yeah. Light and dark yeah, also, right. by the way. These are his options. These are the options. These are the possibilities. There's literary history light, here. Light and dark is the beginning of this Genesis as well. So it's another that uh, too, yeah. cosmological It's all very simple. This Arcado-Sumerian tablet is actually a poetics biography of Armand Schwinner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no, I think yeah. that's right. Yeah. And that's exactly. very cool. And why not? Yeah, and, uh, and Armand was a very funny man. Uh, you know, happy memories of Armand Schwerner and another close friend, George Ekonomu, you know, playing, uh, improvising comic sketches. Mm. Uh, and I don't know how much of the tablets come out of that. Uh, you know, but you were talking about, you know, what, what to say to somebody who comes head on into this, you know, without Armand's instructions about it, uh, you know, and... I think that's great. I think of if Charles is heading us in this direction earlier. You think about you know uh, Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner in the back of a taxi saying, hey, "What would what would it be like if we right. the, I well, was the two thousand year old man?" That's a good idea. And then you know the next thing you know, Ed Sullivan. Right here we have Armand Schwerner, who is an Acadian you know translator. He's and then he's doing this thing, and it's a shtick. It's wonderful. But mis- missing part and untranslatable are fa- fascinating ways of understanding what breaks or fragments are. Now, Pierre talked about un- untranslatable, but missing part is really what we now think of as redacted, too. Redu- you know, missing part is also what's crossed out, uh, yeah. and that you can create the poem through crossouts. And also untranslatable, even though he's putting that forward, you know, nothing is untranslatable. So the fact is that he's saying untranslatable is itself a very, very interesting – it's not an irony either, but it's something else because in a way the poetics is the things are not untranslatable. And yet untranslatable as a comment, as a euphemism, as something that's a break, ah, I'm not going to say that, yeah. is very powerful. Also, it's the scholar translator, that's right. That's right. It's pompous it's person saying this is untranslatable. Well, untranslatable. You know, but is it untranslatable? Could be explicit. And by the way, how, how could it, I can understand missing parts, but how could so much of it be untranslatable explicit, if this guy is doing his job? It could be censored too. It could be rights, yeah, magical yeah. things, or, uh, or sexual or erotic. Untranslatable. Things. I'm not going to yeah. give it to you. You mentioned with irony, I'm thinking of is is that you know ironically Amon is the least I- irony bound person uh, and poet I don't think there's there's a seriousness a depth every time you know even you know there's humor there on the surface but as soon as you go mm-hmm. just under that line he is the yeah. most serious uh, poet you can imagine the, well, I the think, most you know in this sense and I it's it's, it's something I I think a lot a lot with him. In even in my sense as well, comedy, if it's pursued completely, the the funny part drops away, and you just have the darkness. I have a line about a character like Lenny Passion. My my humor is so dark you can't see it, and I th- I think that 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 Schwerner creates a, a a superstructure of this irony, but that the irony does drop away into something else that he's interested in, well, and that you stop well, laughing after. Yeah, but a while. there's also another. Part with it, I, uh, the you know the ethnopoetic imagination, which of course interests me a great deal, and you know, and the question of translation and the untranslatable, uh, is that Armand engaged, you know, as a number of us did also uh, in the translation of the untranslatable, in the translation of uh, uh, ethnopoetic texts, uh, uh, ancient archaic texts. Uh, so may I introduce Armand as translator here uh, what the informant said to France Boas in 1920 this is from the Keres Pueblo in the USA long ago her mother had to sing this song and so she had to grind along with it. The corn people have a song, too. It is very good. I refuse to tell it. 
Yeah. Yeah, so Armand catches that. Yeah, that's that's right. You know, or more mysteriously, from the sack and fox, the little random creatures found a hole with a light in it and saying, Whose? Set a trap with a bow cord for a noose. A giant of light, something alive, dazzled the path. On its way up, blinding the little random creatures. Oh, something alive was dying in the bow court, and it said, Allow me to choke to death, and you'll have night forever. And they let the sun go. (laughs) Well, all parents are scholar translators of their children when they're young. And that is my transition to the other poem. Adam says something. And Armand, the father poet, responds. Really takes off. (laughs) He takes off. So, Pierre, would you, this is a prompt that children can give us. That's the one thing. What else would you say about it? Well, what you expect when the poem opens and begins, you know, you expect funny Armand to come. You know, this is the surreal collaging, uh, connecting, gluing together of parts that don't go together. But the poem immediately, or after a couple lines, man moves into other death, depth, you know, to kill a mother. And it moves on to, to other levels. Later on, two mothers get stable together to do something. But there is this jumping of levels uh, that go against the expectation of the list poem that comes out of a child saying, you know, he, 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 he takes it off. He veers. Other angles come in immediately. And that, you know, makes it arresting in the sense that you go on because it's an ongoing poem, but at the same time, it stops you continuously in its yeah. moves. Yeah, great. great yeah, and a wonderful start, sense you. of structure that he brings into it, you know, although it seems to be just, you know, a, a repetition, repetition. No, 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 it's structure, the images, the words that, that repeat themselves, you know, but intermittently. Yeah. And... Um, you know, and then of course the whole thing of uh, you know, and grind these two staples and tether these two cars and bruise bruise these two leathers, you know, and so on. You know, over a fairly long stretch. Uh, so the you know the remarkable statement by his, his son Adam, uh, can you staple these two stars together to make an airplane? Which is a literal question. Up and. Right. <laughs> He runs with it. Yeah. Thinking of what we've just been talking about, I can't help but think of Adam, and it's really overreading. But Adam, of course, is is the namer in the again that same book, the Bible, fa- famous uh, <laughs> naming of the world. Well, well and, read. And, book and, is. and this, although of course it is the name of his son, but he didn't name his son Adam after all, so it's, it's relevant to that. And he's naming this thing. I mean, this is a poem about a kind of naming that refuses. A, a simple name, and it's a cosmology itself, and it also is a way of rethinking once again parataxis in a non-surrealist way. Parataxis being the joining together of different things, which is basically what what the poem does. But it doesn't allow for a surrealist super image. It's it's a kind of seriality, and so uh, it's also a set of demented aphorisms. And I think another tra- thing that interests you, <laughs> yes, <laughs> a- absolutely, and heavy, there are many on the aphorisms. Yes, Man, many many of these things are uh, uh, are are that. He repeats one a, a, a word at the end more than anything else, which is the word one. So to make a one, to make a one, to make a one, to make a one, four times. I thinking, what is that one? Well, of course, the famous Jewish prayer and concept uh, in the Shema, uh, the, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, echad. So the cosmology here of – and it's, it isn't vernacular English as far as I know. I mean I'm not a vernacular English speaker, but in my time, people don't say to make a one. Uh, usually. To make a one sounds like this biblical concept. But what the biblical concept is, which I, even reading this, I'm thinking of it anew in a Talmud. I'm not, not the way I normally think about it. It's not a unity, but rather that all of these different things that can't be combined are what the one is. So that the divine or God is not one separate thing above us or below us, but is the set of disparate things. That the one is the set of all possible things in the world that are combined together. My next book is called 
Always the many, never the one. Right. So <laughs> it, 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 exactly in the sense that, and, and Pierre is in a, in, in, a, in a, it's not surprising that Pierre is is following out this this thought that's that's in this poem, and and then it becomes fairly, you know, apparent that he has this sense of what the one is is the many. Yeah. Well, we have uh, two tigers to make a one. Which two is, bugs, course, yeah, that's two no bugs one, right? to make a one, and then two ones together to make a one. This is reverse Adamic, <laughs> because we're supposed to take, right. we're supposed to make reverse more. Adamic, reverse and, and, Adamic, and 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 B, because then he has the B, which is a very powerful part in the yeah. poem, and B two things together to make a one, uh, mm. so that the multiplicity of singularity. It's a very um, Yes, it's a heretical, but in a powerful way that once again we say about the comic, it's a heretical that the more you think about it, you realize yeah, it's not the, heretical But the way he structures it too, uh, you know, to go through all of those variations, you know, on what Adam gives to him and then at the end to come to the reprise of the verbs. Right. right. So the end is very powerful, the build up at the at the end. He yeah. also has the same being different. We have two snakes together to make a snake. It's mm-hmm. very important yeah. very, mm-hmm. to me very funny and delightful, but but it's also absolutely crucial to what he's doing. That the two same become a one because they're not one. Crush these two rings together to make a voice. And label these two throats together to make a one. And join these two fathers together to make a horse and whip two friends together to make a dog, and slash two turtles together to make a monster, and kill two brothers together to make an aquarium, and carry two heads together to make a fish, and pile two houses together to make a doctor, and wind two snakes together to make a snake, and burn two hands together to make a hole, and kill two fathers together to make an eye. I want us to try to locate this in time. Uh, The performance is 1967. The poem was written a little before that. It was clearly in the making because when he published it later, he added a few lines and took out a few lines from the performance. But does anybody dare to do a 1967 reading of this? I'm willing to try, but... I mean, it's going to be a stretch no matter what. I think we did a 1999 reading of of Tablet 25, frankly. Well, go ahead. Tell us how. I don't know. I, I well, I don't think it's reverse Adamic so much as a retelling of the Noah story. Um, that's pretty obvious. I mean, all the kids, the children's songs about Noah. You just got to have two of these, and you bring them on board. And but this is a time of, shall we say, uh, uh, in Noah's situation, a time of uh, apocalypse, impending apocalypse. Everybody's going to get wiped out. Uh, it's what you might call a revolutionary moment. Um, and the, what's, what's being pondered here is what can come out of this, what can come out of the various combinations. And survival seems to be at stake. And that's as far as I'll go, except that I would also add that Adam, that is to say the child, is asking a literal question that almost asks you to be surrealistic and I don't know this seemed the response to Adam the child who's doing some kind of homework you know who's getting ready for school gluing things together or making one thing into another um, turns into the father's uh, musing on this what I would call an apocalypse no and he was interested too in in, in, in the language of, uh, of, of children who was it? Piaget that did the uh, the developmental? Yeah, yeah. Adam's comment is right out of Piaget. Yeah, I mean yeah. this 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 fascinated uh, you know Armand and uh, uh, there's a lovely uh, note on Armand by Adam, the son after Armand dies. Uh, one gets the sense of, of how much involved he was in. Uh, in, in in the child world or sort of following Adam there. Something to learn in that. You know, Lacan 
unlike Piaget, though it's related, had yeah. a concept of the mirror stage where a child at a certain point mm-hmm. sees themselves as a distinct thing that's separate as a body, as an eye. But this is almost like the reverse mirror stage, right? One one shatters the mirror and one sees the multiplicity. But in respect to Al's uh, – I can't put this in Gathering Paradise, so I'm going to just say it here – fantastic book, 1960, which has incredible reading of of Jerome Rothenberg's work and is around the reception of the Second World War, the Holocaust, the Kurban in 1960. So he's asking about the Vietnam War. uh, And and so I'm trying to answer that question in the light of, of, of your thinking. And so the two things that immediately come to mind reading the poem and burn two hands together to make a hole. That's one. Now, that's H-O-L-E. And uh, for those not thinking in terms of 67, it's napalm, which would have been the the what was on a lot of our minds, which literally burned uh, children. From 65 um, on. So he makes a hole, H-O-L-E, which is, again, a pun on what we've been talking about, a whole emptiness versus the wholeness. And... Um, it's a very disturbing image, uh, worthy of um, one of uh, Rothenberg's recent uh, poems, like the Inferno and, or the Mad King, uh, and and uh, as I say, very dark dystopian images. Uh, which the, the, it's kind of a fun poem, and yet exactly. And but but and, and but the one I and kill two fathers together to make an eye. So that's okay. the Oedipal, You know, that's again a sixty-eight to, to kill two fathers. To make an eye, you have to kill the two fathers to, to yeah, see. Think about That's that. also a 68 moment, Graft right? that 67 yeah, image 67, onto Noah. Yeah. I'd say 68. Onto Noah. Yeah, right. yeah, and do that. You've got that. I mean, you know, I don't think it's pressing to say that, uh, you know, he's deciding what poem to read at St. Mark's. The place was full of people who were active and current and thinking about contemporary things. And I love the idea of reading it that way. Well, we could talk a long time about both the poems. What I want to do is ask you each for a final thought on either or both or on Schwerner. Charles? There's so much um, um, misdirection about what counts as poetry that even poems like these, which are not difficult in a traditional modernist sense, are made to seem like they're out, out on Mars or something, whereas these poems, to my mind, are more accessible and more immediate uh, than most of the poems that that I read, and certainly, uh, it, it it's it, one of the things that he managed to do also with the structure of the tablets and with this poem is to create something that's very immediate and delightful, and that doesn't require. Although I think he could be described as a difficult poet, a profound poet, a poet you can struggle with, but there's another way in which the, these poems are just remarkably present and performative and don't require heavy interpretation, puzzles to figure them out in the way that people often think of of modernist poems as being. And by the way, I love also poems that require that difficulty, but I'm, I'm, and, and I think that it's worth the time to spend on this and other poems. But these poems actually have created a structure in which it's not necessary to puzzle over it and to look things up and to figure it out. Uh, and it's delightful. There's a delightfulness uh, in this work, uh, you know, with all of the profundity and the common reader might turn to it and be puzzled, uh, you know, but particularly when, when Armand performed the poems. You know, the, the delivery was, I think, extraordinary. And there's, there's, in a way, there's nothing hidden and yet everything is hidden. Right. Well, that's a great, I have to interrupt because that's such a beautiful summary of what we're talking about, both the cosmology and the poetics. There's that doubleness. You know, we said light song, dark song. Uh, The lightness, the heaviness, the the, the depth, if you you want, of of the poet. The fact that uh, now thinking them together again, there isn't that much difference, really, between this and the tablet at a certain at an, at, at a level. You know, it's Armand doing uh, the Schwerner job, which is supposed to be that performance. Remember that moment we're thinking of the late '60s. Uh, this was that great moment in New York when Jerry and you know the, the, David Antin and so on were all performing performative poets in an, in a major way. You know, and he certainly is in there. 
And when I was had to teach creative writing, which I didn't like very much, I turned it into translation workshops. But Amon's tablets would be something I talked to the students about to exactly say, now look, this is a poem that may speak very deeply to personal things, but it does it not in a way where the, there's an, a lyric interference in a, a something. It plays on different levels, and it moves you completely elsewhere than mm-hmm. that poem, either the superficial New Yorker poet or the uh, poetry Chicago I poem. Right, you know, yeah. it's it's somewhere else. It's it's avant-garde, and it is totally also accessible, as we yeah. have said. You know, yeah. it's it's that wonderful doubleness. Yeah, I love that. Well, I want to look at a passage in Tablet Twenty Five, which is again metapoetic in the sense that it refers to the tablet. It refers to uh, the clay uh, that's heated up in the sun, but instead of referring to the tablet, which is the material, the fictional material that this this scholar translator is dealing with and presenting to us, it's a reference to the teacher's changing voices. It reads, a phalanx of my teacher, so that this, this is the person who wrote the tablets referring to his teachers. And presumably some of what we're getting in the tablets is being passed down from teachers. So this is some kind of theology or ideology or way of life that is being preserved by Schwerner speaker who's supposedly found these things. A phalanx of my teacher's changing voices. There it is again, right? The the various voices, which is, of course, a reference to the form of the poem. On the clay road, not the clay tablet, but the road that I walk on again, Pierre, you know, the body on the ground. That is the clay that presumably is the basis, the materiality of that becomes the tablet, that becomes the words that mean things on the clay road. And I lift my head up to the perennial sun, hot red stone in a blue sky containing it or back of it. So you get this beautiful bodily sense of the inscriber on the clay who is Adamic, again in the older poem, Clay himself, who's been taught how to mark in clay to preserve for us, and the sun is warming up the back of his neck, and he is part of the scene and inscribed, as it were, into the tablet. Every one of the tablets refers to tabletness, refers to where we get these things, and I just think that is just utterly brilliant. Okay. We like to end Pone Talk with a minute or two of Gathering Paradise, which is a chance for us to spread wide our narrow hands to gather a little something really poetically good to hail or commend someone or something going on in the poetry world or the movie world or the translation world or whatever. Charles, I know you have something you want to recommend. I'm thinking of Ian Probstein, um, who has just translated a book of Jerry's into Russian, and he translated my work and also co-editor with Vlad Falshenko of a incredible large-scale anthology of U.S. poetry of poets born from 1910 uh, over the next 50 years. <clears throat> also, good, good to think about Russians. I mean, Ian is here and is a refugee, but Vlad still in Russia who are uh, under great fire and not the same as the Ukrainians, but the Russians also people who are dissidents who have different views. Um, so, in respect to something that somebody could get a hold of, I would just recommend Ian Probstein's new translation of Mandelstam. Fantastic. Thank you. Pierre, gather some paradise. Uh, quickly, uh, what I'm finishing right now, and it took me a long time, but I loved every minute of it, is David Graeber's and David, The Dawn of Anything. Uh, everything. Of everything. The dawn of, <laughs> the dawn of everything and anything. Uh, <laughs> to me, it reminds me that the poets I read earlier that I learned from, be it Jerry or be it Charles Olson, ah, yes, that is someone that Olson wrote about I should, you should read in, you know, it is the right critique at this point of, that gets us out of an anthropocentric view of uh, humans. So, to me, a very important book. Uh, I'm still trying to finish, and I love every moment of it, uh, Nate Mackey's uh, triple volume, you know, I'm in the middle of it. And uh, 
I got a book yesterday. I only opened it, read one, read one poem in it. It's a new book of poem by Billy Chernikov, who I think is an absolutely gorgeous uh, lyric poet from upstate New York. I cannot even remember the title of the book because the main man bought it yesterday. I just opened it, read a poem, and put it down. But so there you are. That's paradise. Great. Yeah. Keep reading. And I have Jerry. I have for the last several years uh, been working on a new big anthology that brings in you know many different voices going back uh, ten thousand years in this hemisphere, the Western Hemisphere, or the hemisphere of the Americas. So it's a it's a book of Americas, and uh, it's uh, you know throw me into readings uh, you know from you know our own you know North American uh, English, but the multiple in indigenous cultures and languages and poetries you know over a long span. You know, particularly when we open up the notion of what we think of as poetry, uh, we can push it back 10,000 years to the Cave of the Hands uh, in, uh, in Patagonia, you know, and into the period uh, uh, about 2,000 years ago, the beginnings of writing uh, in the Americas. Uh, and the book in, has a title? Uh, a Book of Americas. Book of Americas. And it will and be published... Sometime, sometime. <laughs> by, sometime by the University listen. of California Press. Fantastic. Uh, great, great suggestion. Uh, my Gathering Paradise is Robert Duncan's The HD Book. Uh, raise your hands, honestly, if you've read this book. <clears throat> One. So it is a big book. I mean, let us, let the record I've show. I've read part of it. I mean, no, yes. well, let the record show parts. that the edition I have is 600 and plus, 50 plus pages. Anyway. I've never so he writes about HD on and off in this book, <laughs> but I've never so I'm just going to read a paragraph from it. I've never read anything like this about HD. It is so remarkable. He's writing about a poem called Heat, which I'm going to ask Charles Bernstein to read, and then I'm going to read. Sorry, Charles. Then then I'm going to read the paragraph. This is Heat by HD. Quite a remarkable and precise poem. Oh, wind. Rend open the heat, cut apart the heat, rend it to tatters. Fruit cannot drop through this thick air. Fruit cannot fall into heat that presses up and blunts the points of pears and rounds the grapes. Cut the heat, plow through it, turning it on either side of your path. So Duncan takes this. And for several pages, he thinks about his own childhood and his increasing marginalization and alienation. And here's the not quite last paragraph of this passage. I just find it's an amazing reading of this poem. There was another expression we had read or heard of that, of, of that was echoed in the poem, a cry that rent the air, something about to happen that would challenge inheritance and environment. Rend it to tatters, H.D. asks of the wind in the poem. The address and the evoked image in their message concentrated a likewise hidden prayer of adolescence. That this intensity, this threatening to come to a conclusion, this susceptibility to be shaped, not to be rounded in the oppressive thick air of home and town toward homeowner and townsman, but be broken or break forth into something yet to be known. The thickness and heat that ripened was the intensity's own medium of life. All about one, one saw the process of the town's shaping unruly youth into its citizens, pressing desire into the roundness of available civic enterprise, thickening the fire of the spirit into energetic figures that would be of public use. Oh, and this is just O without the H. O, let my youth be rent open by some new force, the soul prayed. Let a path be made like a wind rending what cohered toward an end of energies into even, if need be, an incoherence. To free movement from its impending goal, enlarging the demand for forms. And then a dash, and then a quote from the poem. Cut the heat, plow through it, turning it on either side of your path. 
how dare he take this perfect example of coherence and precision and turn it into a plea for the marginalized youth of a town that needs incoherence. It is a brilliant move on, on his part and a great reading of HD. Well, that's all the burning of two hands to make a whole we have time for on Poem Talk today. Poem Talk at the Writer's House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs and Contemporary Writing and the Kelly Writer's House at the University of Pennsylvania and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks so, so much to my guests, Charles Bernstein, Pierre Joris, and Jerry Rothenberg, and to Poem Talk's directors and engineers today, Zach Cardner and Paul Burke, and to Poem Talk's editor, the same amazing Zach Cardner. Next time on Poem Talk, we will be on the road at the Poetry Foundation, the aforementioned Poetry Foundation in Chicago, where Lisa Fishman, Gabriel Ojeda Segay, and Lainey Brown will join me to talk about poems from Lisa's book, Mad World, Mad Kings, Mad Composition. This is Al Filreis, and I hope you'll join us for that or another episode of Poem Talk.